Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, This is another one of the interviews in a special series. The goal of all these interviews in total will be to create a book on understanding viruses. I've sought out uh, some of the top thinkers in the world that may or may not be virologists themselves, but um, they're heavily into the biosciences. Uh, They're doing ancillary things and research around and in and around viruses. They have a very informed commentary on uh, on viruses, and I think they're going to make a great addition to the book. So today, I have a returning guest. His name is Shiraz Shah. He's a senior researcher at uh, what's called CUPSEC. Um, he focuses yes. quite a bit on um, on CRISPR-Cas9 technology, um, and we're going to be turning his attention to uh, to viruses today for the call. So, Shiraz, thanks for coming back. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Doing good. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, uh, tell me a little bit again about your background. What what was your beginning in the science world, and uh, you know, a couple of key events that brought you to where you are today? Yeah. So basically, I mean, I have a PhD in, um, maybe we could back up before that. So I did my master's in, sure. in bioinformatics. And bioinformatics is basically where you use computers to analyze protein sequences and DNA sequences. Because most living organisms on Earth are, you know, they, they, they contain tremendous amounts of information within their DNA. And so a bacterium will be typically maybe a couple of megabytes, three or four megabytes and, and, you know, the human genome is around four gigabytes, something like that, right? And so all of that is written in kind of a, a kind of a code, a biological code, so to speak. And we as human beings have been learning to decode that code since some of the first genomes started coming out in the early 90s. And so there's just so much information in biology. You know, once you start sequencing DNA, there's so much information there. And to try to understand that, that's what you do as a bioinformatician. So you actually use computers to analyze biological sequences. And they can be protein sequences, or they can be DNA sequences. And so I started my PhD in 2007, where I was employed at Copenhagen University to do some bioinformatics on this new, newly discovered immune system in bacteria. And, and bacteria use this immune system to protect themselves against viral infections, because bacteria can get sick as well. They get viral infections, and they die of these viral infections. In fact, I think every other bacterium dies every day from a viral infection. So it's very lethal for a bacterium to get infected by a virus. So obviously, bacteria need to defend themselves against viruses, and they have a number of different immune types of immune systems to, to do that. And some of them fall under what we could call innate immune mechanisms, and other fall under what you could call adaptive immune mechanisms. And one of the adaptive immune responses that bacteria have are CRISPR, CRISPR systems, right? And back then, you know, not a lot was known about CRISPR-Cas systems. And we were, you know, we were sequencing different bacteria and different archaea. And we were, we were looking at the genome and the contents of the genome in terms of which genes are there. And we could see that we have the CRISPR systems here on the genome because we could see that the bacteria will, were basically saving bits and pieces of sequences from the different viruses that had infected them over the past decade or something. So they had encoded resistance against a series of different 
viruses and you could have one bacterium having memory units against maybe a hundred different viruses and stuff like that. Right. So my, 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 um, my uh, assignment there was to try to figure out just by looking at the DNA sequence of the area in which the CRISPR Cas immune system is encoded, what can we find out about, you know, the interactions that the bacterium has, has been having against the different viruses that it's been infected by over the last decade and stuff like that. What are the different types of CRISPR-Cas immune systems that exist in the different bacteria and archaea we were looking at? And, and CRISPR-Cas systems in, exist in many different versions, depending on which bacterium or which archaean you're, you're looking at. And, and at that point, back in 2008 or nine, we were just trying to figure out, just starting to figure out what are the different types of immune systems, CRISPR immune systems that exist. And today, one particular type, I think it's type 2A or type 2C, which is being used in human, human genome engineering. And that's the type that's being used there. But in fact, you know, the, the, the entire diversity of CRISPR-Cas systems is a lot larger, uh, you know, but just one of them is being used at the moment as a technology. And I okay. guess you could use all the other ones as well for different stuff. Yeah. But I was going to make one, one joke before we move on to viruses. You know how they used to say about sexually transmitted diseases. If you sleep with someone, you're sleeping with everyone they've slept with. Well, you get infected by a bacteria. You're getting infected by, by every other creature that's infected that bacteria in a way. <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah, you actually end up getting kind of infected by all the viruses that have infected that bacterium because the virus has the bacterium has a memory of those viruses, which is really amazing. You know, I mean, they're such primitive organisms, bacteria, but yet they have such an advanced immune system. And so, and, and so, so basically what happened after that, you know, I researched CRISPR-Cas systems bioinformatically, so on my computer for, I don't know, a decade or something. And then after that, you know, I had also gained a lot of expertise on the actual viruses that infect these bacteria and archaea because I was looking at those as well. And so then I got a new job at COPSAC, which you mentioned, which is the Copenhagen Prospective Studies um, on Asthma and Childhood. And so that is basically, it's basically a cohort study where we're looking at a bunch of children that we've been following since they were born. And we're trying to figure out, you know, why do some of them develop asthma? And, uh, and because not, not a lot is known about why you get asthma. And it's not only asthma, it's basically most chronic diseases. In children, you have asthma and allergy and eczema. But, you know, in adults, you have stuff like cancer, heart disease, you know, arthritis, strokes and stuff like that. You know, all kinds of all these chronic diseases, which actually end up killing most people. We don't actually know why they occur. And so the, the, the approach that we have at COPSAC is basically we, we look at a bunch of children and we measure everything we can about these children. We look at not on their bodies, on different body sites to try to figure out, you know, what are the, what's the chemical composition of their blood? What bacteria have, do they have on different parts of the body? You know, what are the different exposures that they have been exposed to throughout childhood? When do they start to go into daycare, et cetera? You know, all, as much information as we can collect on these children. And then you have, if you have a lot of information on like maybe a thousand children and, and maybe 200 of them end up developing, you know, a chronic disease like asthma or eczema or something like that, then you can take all the data that you collected about these children and compare it against their diagnosis to try to figure out what are the patterns that we see with the stuff that we've measured on these children and the diagnosis that they end up getting. And the, 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 the motivation for this is to try to basically understand why do these children develop these different chronic diseases. And also, we, I mean, we plan on following these kids until they become adults so that we can look at other chronic diseases besides asthma and eczema and allergy okay. as well. Yeah. Turning, turning to the subject with viruses, I was, I was just about to ask you, why, why were you willing to participate in this book? And, you know, you're, you're heavily into yeah. bacteria, but why, why consider yeah. viruses as well? 
Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think that's, I mean, the short answer to that question is that that's what I work with today. I only work with viruses, even though before I used to work with bacteria and their immune systems. Now I work with the actual viruses that infect the bacteria and also viruses that infect human beings, because we have like, we have tons of these data sets for the children, right? I mean, we have all the bacteria that are on the body surface or inside the body. And now we also have a data set of viruses in the gut at one year of age. So we know when the children were babies, when they were one year old, old, which viruses did they have in their gut at that time point? And I'm trying to look at that data to see, okay, kid number one has this and this and this virus, kid number two has this and this and this virus, kid number three has this and this and this virus. And we can then take that data and compare it against the diagnoses that the kids end up getting later and try to see, okay, so this virus seems to be linked to asthma, this virus seems to be linked to eczema, this virus seems to be linked to maybe, you know, psychiatric stuff like, you know, like ADHD and stuff like that, right? So that's basically what I'm trying to figure out. I have this in gigantic viral data set, like 16,700 viruses that we have numbers for, for all of the kids. And then we can compare these numbers for each of those viruses against the different diagnoses that the kids end up getting. And so that's why I'm into viruses. And so this work has basically you know, made me realize that, you know, our old view of viruses is something that is, that's dangerous, that's something that can make us sick. I think that's kind of outdated because many of these kids are completely normal and healthy and they, they don't actually have, they're not ill in any way, yet they're full of viruses, tons and tons of viruses. So well, that's basically why I want to do this podcast. Yeah, because you said that, I want to jump forward to a question that I asked later on. Do you think that viruses comprise part of our immunity and part of the immunity of other creatures? And if, if so, what's your guess on how? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think and it's a difficult question to answer, but I would say, and this is, this is partly inspired by a lot of the virus literature, which is, that is already out there, and especially concerning viruses that infect bacteria. So, so viruses that infect bacteria, they place an enormous pressure on bacteria because every, as I told you in the beginning, every other bacterium gets killed by a viral infection every other day, right? So viruses are a lot more lethal to bacteria than they are to us. And so bacteria are always on the lookout to try to create maybe new defense systems that they can use to protect, protect themselves against these uh, viruses. And they do that by evolution, you know? And, and so the interesting thing here is that viruses have a turnover rate, which is a lot faster than bacteria. Bacteria have a turnover rate, which is a lot faster than us. I mean, we live for maybe 80 years and we, you know, you know, throughout that, you know, uh, one, one human generation is maybe like 30 years long, right? It takes 30 years before human beings typically get kids, right? But with bacteria, it's like every 20 minutes, some of the fastest growing bacteria, every 20 minutes, you have a new generation of bacteria. And with viruses, it's like a hundred times that number, right? Because each virus will infect one bacterium. And during that life cycle, of 20 minutes, it will create maybe 100 copies of itself, right? So you have viruses that multiply, you know, 100 times faster than the bacterial hosts that they infect. And so, uh, you know, not only do viruses replicate a lot faster, but they also have a lot smaller, you know, they're a lot more simple than cellular organisms. So they're, they're made up of a lot fewer moving parts, a lot fewer components, right? And so there are fewer components that are dependent on each other, which means that the viruses can basically experiment with the contents of their genome and, with, and they can evolve because of that, they can evolve a lot faster than bacteria. And again, bacteria can evolve a lot faster than we can, right? And so the thing is here, so why am I telling you this? The reason being that, you know, yeah, there, there seems to be some evidence that, you know, in this whole arms race that you have between viruses that infect bacteria, 
and bacteria themselves, there's a lot of evolution going on. And a lot of that evolution is happening on the viral side because the viruses replicate a lot faster. And so many of these viruses will have as strategies, they will have one strategy where they will integrate into the viral, into the bacterial chromosome. So instead of basically killing the bacterium, they will become part of the bacterium, right? And when, when they become part of the bacterium, many of the protein coding genes that are on the viral genome now become part of the bacterial genome. So now the bacterium is you know, carrying around genes that encode viral proteins. And some of these viral proteins might actually help the bacterium in surviving, you know. It's basically a survival strategy for the virus. Sometimes it makes better sense to help your host instead of killing your host, right? And so because there's so much evolution going on in the viruses because they replicate so much faster than bacteria, there's always new kinds of proteins that are evolving from scratch, you know. And one of the, one of the leading hypotheses is within the field is that, you know, most proteins evolve from scratch within, you know, viruses, and then they are inherited by cellular organisms to carry out, you know, regular tasks like powering life and stuff like that. So many of the exotic you, proteins. Do you think yes. they're, they're actually made from scratch or is it an endless borrowing and no one knows who had it first? I mean, that's a good question. You know, I think the second, I mean, the, the, the latter that you've just mentioned, that there's an endless borrowing and that there's, there's so much evolution going on that, you know, the, the protein sequences in the end become completely unrecognizable from their origin. We know that happens for sure. You know? So there's a lot of borrowing going back and forth, you know, and, and, and by the end of it, we can't even recognize the original protein sequence. So that definitely happens. But we also know that the, the other thing actually happens where you have protein sequences arising from scratch, right? Because viruses evolve so fast and also especially bacterial viruses are interesting in this regard because bacterial viruses are quite big and complex for some reason. Whereas most eukaryotic viruses, I mean, viruses that infect human beings, most of them are actually really small. And I don't know what the reason for that is. There could be a lot of different reasons why it's ended up being that way. I mean, some human viruses are large and complex, but most of them are like really small. But most bacterial viruses are like gigantic, right? And so they have a DNA genome where there's room for a lot of experimentation. So besides having the protein coding genes that actually encode the actual viral structural proteins that encode the structure of the virus, you know, the head protein, the tail proteins, the tail fibers, the collar protein, the base plate, stuff like that, you know, the actual physical structure of the virion. Apart from that, the, the, the bacteriophage genome or the bacterial virus genome has a lot of extra room for encoding all kinds of random stuff. And so if you compare two closely related, you know, bacterial, uh, bacterial viruses, then they will have most of their genes in common, which are the, which could, the, the genes that encode some of these viral structural proteins. And then you, they will have these like small genes, which are, complete, which are not in common, even though the two viruses might be quite closely related, they, they, they will have a set of genes which are not in common. And so those seem to be the ones that just evolved recently, right? And it happens, you know, if you have a, a G on the DNA that turns into an A, a then all of a sudden you have a start codon. And if you have a stop codon further down the line, then actually that makes up a protein coding gene. And that can happen at random. And it can happen very fast in, in, in viral genomes because viruses mutate a lot faster than cellular organisms, right? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So we know that viruses encode proteins with completely random amino acid sequences because these protein coding genes just evolved from one single mutation. And now you have a whole protein encoding a random amino acid sequence. And then over time, from one generation to the next generation to the next generation of this virus's replication, some of these random proteins will start gaining functions because they will acquire additional mutations, right? And so all of a sudden now you have a random protein sequence that, that all of a sudden gains a function 
which is beneficial maybe to the virus or could be beneficial to the host and then indirectly beneficial to the virus further down the line, et cetera, et cetera. So we think that much of the protein novelty is created within viruses and especially these viruses that infect bacteria. And these, these proteins will then be inherited to the bacterial hosts that carry these viruses and the bacteria will start using these proteins for beneficial things. And later on, these bacteria might colonize their eukaryotic hosts like us. And then we could end up inheriting those same protein coding genes that actually originated from a bacterial virus. We can use okay. those proteins to do, do stuff. All right, so a virus can either get into a bacteria or eukaryotic cell. It can multiply, replicate, lyse the cell and kill it. Or it can go into a latent, latent or lysogenic phase and where it hangs out. Maybe it doesn't mm -hmm. become part of the chromosome, but it's there. You know, it doesn't go away for months or years, let's say. It stays with the, the, the cell for its life. Or yes. in some cases, they actually do become part of the, the DNA and the RNA of the, the, the cell it's infecting. Why, why does it happen? Who's making that choice? Is it the infected cell? Is it the virus itself making that choice? What's your thought there? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think, I think, uh, a lot, I mean, there are uh, bacteriophages, so bacterial viruses. Bacteriophages are divided into two broadly broad categories. You have the lytic bacteriophages that just kill the bacteria. Then you have the lysogenic bacteriophages. And when you look at them, they actually share a lot in common. They almost look identical sometimes just physically when you look at them. When you look at the genome, you can't, you can't actually tell the difference between the one that's going to be lysogenic and the ones that, 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 that's going to be lytic unless it has an integrase gene. So an integrase gene is like a, encodes for a protein, which is responsible for basically copy pasting the viral DNA into the bacterial host chromosome. And if you have a gene that encodes an integrase, then you kind of know that this is a lysogenic phage and the lysogenic bacteriophage. And so, so basically one of those that integrates itself into the host chromosome. And, and that's the only kind of reliable way we have of distinguishing between the two. And so I don't know whether that means, I don't, I don't even know whether lysogenic and lytic bacteriophages are fundamentally different from each other. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what determines that. I mean, how virulent a phage is. So basically how aggressive is it when it infects a bacterium that can depend on a number of different factors and phages that want to integrate themselves into the host, they don't want to kill their host immediately, right? And so that's why they have to be less aggressive than the ones that just go for the killing and don't want to actually integrate. So I think there could be a number of different factors. I think a lot of it is decided on the viral genome, maybe. You know, some of the infection proteins might be less effective for the lysogenic phages, but then on the other hand, they have this integrase protein, which enables that, you know, virus to integrate itself into the host chromosome. So I think my gut feeling would be and I think it's kind of the decision is made by the phage, not that it's consciously making that decision, but it's just basically a product of the makeup of its genome and the proteins that are encoded in, in the genome and how effective they are at killing the bacterium and stuff like that. But we do see, as you said, bacteria actively harvesting uh, different sequences from viruses. So there is also a decision, it appears, on the bacterial level. The bacteria mm. has to discern, okay, in order to make myself immune to this virus. I don't just take the entire sequence. I take mm. these specific, you know, particular genes or sequences and I integrate them or I keep them on hand. So yeah. there appears to be some discernment possibly on both sides, which I'm yeah. anthropomorphizing, but hey, you know, that's what seems no, to be happening. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a very good point that I didn't actually think about. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, bacteria are benefiting 
from some of these viruses that are integrated. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't carry them around on their genomes if they weren't benefiting from them, because that's what we know from bacterial genomes. They, they get streamlined all the time, right? So you have, if you have too much DNA on the bacterial chromosome, that's a burden for the cell because it takes longer to replicate than the cell if the DNA is longer, right? And so the bacterium is constantly trying to streamline its genome in, in an effort to become more competitive you know, with the other bacteria that it's living alongside. And so if there's a piece of DNA that it can't use for anything, it's just a matter of time before that piece of DNA, get, it gets rid of it or it gets mutated beyond recognition, right? And we see a lot of these prophages that they're called. These are viruses that are integrated into the bacterial chromosome. These prophages are maintained, you know, after several generations. And it must be because that prophage is somehow benefiting the, the bacterium. And often the prophages will encode what we call auxiliary metabolic genes. And so that, those are basically just genes that will in some way or another up, upgrade the metabolism of the host bacterium. So it could be an enzyme that can degrade a new type of sugar or a new type of you know, uh, poly, polysaccharide or something like that. Something that the bacteria would, would not have been able to do had it not been infected by this integrated prophage, but because that prophage is there, it's applying this protein, this enzyme that can degrade, degrade a new type of polysaccharide. And so that opens up a new niche for the bacterium to colonize you know, a new area because there's types of nutrients there that it was not able to digest before that, right? So that's just one example of one way that these you know, bacteriophages or integrated prophages can help the host uh, bacterium. But there are many other ways that they can do it as well. I mean, we know prophages that encode proteins that interact even with the human immune system. And why, you know, why would they do that, you know? And so any, any indirect benefit to the prophage could come, through an could come through an indirect benefit to the bacterial host itself. And so if there's, there's a protein that the bacteriophage can encode, which may, maybe diverts the human immune system, then that, bacteriophage, then that bacterium will not get recognized by the human immune system and won't get cleared out. And so that's going to indirectly help the bacterium as well as the bacteriophage that's residing on the chromosome. And so there are many conceivable ways that proteins encoded on prophages can help the bacterium in different ways. And, and I think that's the reason why many of these bacteria choose to have these prophages hanging around. On them. Yeah, if you think about it, it's, it's amazing. Um, I've heard that some bacteria only are virulent because of the phage that's infecting them and giving them the ability to be virulent, like uh, cholera, Vibrio yeah. cholera. Um, it's not supposed to be deadly to us until it gets infected by a particular mm -hmm. phage that gives it the ability mm -hmm. to make it sick. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Uh, essentially, it seems like to me, uh, the virome of a bacteria or the phageome, you could call it, is not only part of its immunity, but it's part of its abilities and I don't know. I just wonder what that, and you're saying there's even interactions with us, let's say a bacteria is inside us and the virome of the bacteria is changing its relationship with us. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, what the kinds of things that go on here and, you know, and, and, and I think there was a recent paper in science, just like two weeks old, I think, maybe not even two weeks old. It just came in science. And basically what they showed was that, that, that you had these cancer patients who were receiving T cell immunotherapy. Right. And so these were patients who had renal cancer, so cancer of the kidney or lung cancer. Right. And they were receiving a particular type of T cell immune therapy. Uh, and so what they found was that some patients were a lot more responsive to the immune therapy 
than others. And so then they looked into this and eventually what they found out was that the patients who were responding better to the T-cell immune therapy, they had a particular bacterium, an enterococcus within their guts, I think. I think it was within their guts. But, and that enterococcus was infected by a prophage. And so patients that were, did not have a bacterium that was infected by this particular prophage didn't respond that well to immune therapy. But if you had a bacterium that was infected by this particular prophage, then you would have a lot better outcome with this T-cell immune therapy. And so then they looked into why is this? And so it turns out that, that these prophages or this particular prophage, and, and this is something that, that goes on with most, a lot of bacteriophages. They have these diversity generating elements. I know it's, it's a bit complicated, but what they do is basically, it's a bit like our own immune system, which uses shuffling of protein coding genes that encode these immunoglobulins in order to recognize new pathogens, right? So you have these different T cells and B cells that recognize different bacteria or viruses that can infect us. And they do this by shuffling their, you know, the, the T cell receptor or the immunoglobulin, you know, protein coding gene is shuffled in order to create new combinations that can recognize new, new bacteria and viruses. And so the bacteriophages, they do kind of something similar. They have these tail fibers that they use to recognize the bacterium that they want to infect. And in order to switch hosts to a new type of bacterium, they will basically shuffle the protein coding genes that, that encodes for the, for the tail fiber protein. And so that gets shuffled up. And so you basically can have the same bacteriophage, but with completely different tail fibers that would be able to recognize and bind to a completely different bacterium. So anyway, what happened here was that this particular bacterial virus that had infected this bacterium had mutated its tail fibers in a way that that tail fiber for some random reason resembled the surface protein on some of these renal and lung cancer proteins. And so this induced a T cell response against that particular bacteriophage. So that T, that T cell was able to recognize the bacteriophage for some reason. And so since it was able to recognize the bacteriophage, it was also now able to recognize this cancer, the renal cancer or the lung cancer, because for a random reason, that bacteriophage tail resembled a cancer surface. And so that's just one of the ways in which bacteriophages can actually interact with our immune system directly and end up actually benefiting us in, in the long term. And I guess you can also imagine the opposite example. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, in this case, it turned out kind of to be a, a, a happy ending because cancer is like really bad. And so if you can fight cancer, that's really good, right? But it could also be the opposite that, you know, by, for, for a random reason, you have a tail fiber mutating into something that resembles some, something in the body. That could be maybe your, you know, some, uh, you know, your, uh, your, some proteins in the pancreas or something like that in, in the pancreas. And so you all of a sudden now have a T cell that recognizes a bacteriophage tail fiber that resembles the, some protein in the pancreas. And then you have T cells now attacking the pancreas and then you get diabetes or something. Like that. I mean, that's also equally conceivable. If one is possible, the other, I guess, is also possible. So we, we, I mean, we see a lot, we, we're starting to see more and more of these examples. Amazing. Um, yeah. I want to go to one question. Um, I watched, uh, I read a few papers and I watched a video on how this, I believe it's like a T4 phage infects mm -hmm. uh, E. coli. So mm -hmm. it, it, like you said, these tail fibers uh, interact with the surface of the bacteria. They kind of anchor the bacteria. The bacteria gets pulled towards the membrane. It, uh, it begins to fuse. And then this, this column changes shape and, and the, the genetic material is like injected into the membrane of the cell of the bacteria. Mm -hmm. If, um, 
if you had a denucleated bacteria or if you had, you know, a, a bacteria with all the content sucked out, mm-hmm. do you think that this uh, bacteriophage would go through the whole process and inject or do you think it would stop at some point? And, and if so, what would that tell you? That's a good question. I don't actually know. I've never really thought about that. But what are your thoughts on that, Richard? I think that there is sensing. So depending on how far along the, uh, you know, in the fusing and entry that the sensing picks up that something's quote unquote wrong or missing, that it may stop at some point. That's, that's mm-hmm. my guess. But I think there's, I don't think it's just a uh, passive like, oh, you know, because the machinery is so complicated. It doesn't make sense to me that it would just be random. It would be somehow a uh, deliberate series of changes to allow it to do that. Because again, it's, that's not the only way viruses enter, but that's a, it's just amazingly complex. It's like a moon lander. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so yes. I, I do think it would stop. Well, yeah. maybe you could I mean, fool I mean, it. I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to often, and maybe that's, a, maybe that's an error on my part, but I often tend to think of these biological systems, especially viral infections and stuff, as, as pretty dumb. And so basically, the, the basically, obviously, I mean, much of the behavior that looks kind of almost intelligent comes from basically some numbers game, right? I mean, if you have millions upon millions of viral particles, then some of them are going to end up doing something that ends up being clever because you just have so many. And so with the same with the bacteriophage that replicates within a bacterium, you get a hundred bacteriophages. And only a few of those need to make mount successful infections in order for that bacteriophage to get, you know, to multiply and multiply and multiply. And so even if most of those bacteriophages are wasted, it doesn't really matter. That's what I would think, you know, intuitively. But I think, you know, but I still think you have a point. I, I think often biology surprises us, you know, with these things. And some of these machineries are a lot more clever than we thought. It's, it's quite interesting. Well, th- this was an earlier question. Do you think that viruses are alive and, and why or why not? And if they are alive, what abilities do they have, even though they haven't been proven? And if they're not alive, you know, again, why not? Yeah, it's a good question. Again, I think it's one of those questions which I, I find a little bit difficult because, you know, how do you define life, you know? And so mm-hmm. it becomes really difficult. I think at the moment, there's a very arbitrary definition I mean, there's, there's first of all this kind of that the, the living organism needs to have the kind of the ability to reproduce itself independently. And so viruses would be dependent on a host, so they wouldn't apply. And then also there seems to be sometimes an additional criterion, which is that there needs to be a metabolism. So there needs to be some kind of, you know, some chemistry going on within the biological entity that makes it, that qualifies it for being alive. And I think maybe that does make sense in a sense. I mean, for example, as human beings, I'm sitting here talking to you and the only reason I'm able to do that is because I have neurons in my brain firing back and forth and stuff like that. So they're like chemicals going back and forth between synapses. And the only reason why that can happen is because I have enough energy in my body to actually pull that off. So I've eaten some food and all of that is chemical reactions going on in my body right now, right? And we have, we see that in bacteria as well. There are lots of chemical reactions that are going on at every instant and which are basically perpetuating the life of that bacterium. With viruses, there aren't actually any chemical reactions going on within them. them. And so that's maybe an interesting criterion uh, to be able to distinguish, uh, you know, uh, life, uh, something living from something non-living if, if you want to make the cutoff with viruses, right? Viruses definitely do not have any chemistry inside themselves. At least most viruses don't. And then you have these exceptions because biology is full of exceptions, right? So you do still have some viruses that do have chemistry going on. And then does that mean that those particular viruses are then alive, whereas the rest are dead? I think a lot of these questions are very complex and kind of, you know, it's kind of like, it's, 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 you know, it's, it becomes a little bit arbitrary and, 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 
yeah. So I, I think it's hard. I think it's hard. But if you wanted to say that, you know, living organisms need to be able to replicate, well, viruses can actually replicate, even though they're dependent on a host, they can actually replicate. I think that's good enough to, 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 for, to, to qualify viruses as being alive. But if you want to have metabolism, well, most viruses don't actually have that. And so in, in that sense, I guess viruses are, whereas bacteria would definitely be alive and everything above that as well. Well, if I think about, um, uh, I don't know, a tree, um, mm. I would say it's alive for sure. And if I think mm-hmm. about its seed, if it's a tree that has seeds, uh, would I think mm-hmm. that the seed is alive? I would think it's, I guess, dormant. And yeah. because I experience trees most of the time as, you know, I look outside and I see trees and they're alive, I experience most of its life cycle as, li- as living, not dormant stage. Yeah. Um, perhaps because we experience viruses or we seem to be able to study them only in their virion stage easily, um, and that stage is dormant, maybe we consider them not alive. Maybe, maybe they're alive when they enter into a cell, you know, bacteria, you carry out whatever, but uh, yes. they're just dormant when they're not. And maybe they're alive in that way. I don't know. Yeah, that's, I love that. That's, that's a really good point, uh, Richard. And also, in fact, I mean, it's kind of an, an uh, I mean, there's, there's kind of a concept called the virocell within, within, you know, the biology of viruses. There's this concept that's been developed by a guy called Patrick Forterre, which, who's a French virologist, and he calls, he calls viral cells are basically cells that are infected by a virus. And so now these cells are programmed to do whatever the virus tells them to do, right? So that, in a sense, makes the virus alive, just like you're saying. So basically, you know, yeah. And, and, so, and, so, and so there you can see that there, you can say in a sense that there are two modes of, of being alive. One is like the, the mode where the cellular organism itself decides is calling the shots. And the other mode is where a virus is calling the shots on the cell. And there are like two types of life and one is governed by the virus and the other is governed by the cell. So in that sense, I, can, I think it makes perfect sense to say that viruses can be alive at least while they're infecting. It's a very good analogy with the, with the seed, I think. Very good. Very interesting. Here's another one that's probably going to be really difficult. So um, I've noticed that, let's say, flu virus, uh, it'll be caught, let's say, by, you know, a cough or sneeze, you know, respiratory droplets. Um, and it, it tends to infect the cells that are responsible for respiration. And oh. if you look at rabies, uh, it seems to be transferred by biting and saliva. And then it seems to affect those kind of cells. Why do you think there is a matching? How could, how could a virus ever know, okay, <laughs> these are the kind of cells I infect. And so to move on to a new host, I need to activate those cells in such a way as to cause transmission using those particular cells or pathway. It seems like they're matched for some amazing reason that's true you know i mean it's very much it's very much the case with viruses viruses there's kind of a lock and key kind of thing going on and i think i think this is because viruses have this ability to evolve very quickly right and so they can respond uh, you know within just a few generations they can respond to changes within the host those changes could be the host trying to defend itself uh, against that virus and, 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 uh, and all kinds of other changes as well, you know, in terms of the host range and stuff like that, right? And so I think the tremendous ability for, for viruses to basically mutate means that they're also able to respond to their environment much faster than most cellular organisms. And so that's why you get these, you know, you, I think that's, that's why you get these kind of uh, interlinked kind of, you know, pairings where it almost looks like too good to be true. Why does that virus know to infect exactly respiratory tissue 
Uh, well, I mean, I think it's evolved to do that. And, and I think they can evolve to do that very quickly. I mean, for example, you have adenoviruses, which cause respiratory infections, but adenoviruses can also cause like gastrointestinal infections. And so adenoviruses fall within several kind of subfamilies, or you could say, I mean, you have like a few species that infect human beings. And so some of the subspecies will infect human kind of uh, respiratory tissue and others will infect kind of the uh, epithelial tissue in the gut. And I think that's just a matter of like surface receptors having mutated within a few generations to be able to recognize either, you know, Um, I think that's the reason actually. Okay. And, you know, another question along that line, you know, why are some bacteriophages look like moon landers with head, tail, tail fibers, collar, and others in eukaryotic cells are just round with spikes. I mean, what, you know, some are rods, some are, what, how and why do they have all these differences? I mean, it's such a good question. I have to say, this is something that has been puzzling virologists for like, you know, as, as long as I can remember. And I think that there's actually starting to become, we're starting to see some answers now at the moment because we're starting to get to know more and more viruses. And so, I mean, for a long while, I think most like 90% of all viruses that infect bacteria, they look like these moon landers that you mentioned, like these spaceships, right? And, yeah. and, and by far, most of the viruses that infect eukaryotes, they just look, you know, like round, you know, and don't look a lot very complicated compared to bacterial viruses. And so why do bacterial viruses look like this? And so there's been speculation because you can have bacterial viruses that when you look at their genome, they will look completely different from each other. But when you look at actually their physical, physical shape, it's like they look the same. So physically, they look like these moon landers. But when you look at the genome, the genome looks completely different between the two. So there's been speculation whether there's been some kind of convergent evolution going on, which means that, you know, maybe the only way to infect a bacterial cell is to look like a moon lander, right? And so there have been a lot of hypotheses as to why this is the case. And you, earlier you talked about, you know, you saw this T4, you know, video infecting E. coli and you have this virus basically injecting its DNA. Well, most bacteria, they have this cell wall or almost all bacteria have a cell wall composed of, uh, 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 composed of something called peptidoglycan, which is like a really, it's a polymer and it's like really hard to penetrate, right? Mm-hmm. And so the speculation at the moment is that the reason why bacteria, most bacterial viruses look like this is because they need to be able to inf- penetrate this wall, which is really difficult to penetrate. It's a very thick wall. So you need to have this like syringe-like structure in order to inject DNA through that. Now, when you look at archaea, they don't have a peptidoglycan cell wall. And if you look at, you know, eukaryotes, they don't have a peptidoglycan cell wall either. Cell walls in eukaryotes can be composed of different things like cholesterol and stuff like that. It's a lot softer than peptidoglycan. It can also be composed of harder stuff like cellulose, which is mostly in plants. But it's, there's a lot more diversity in, in the composure of cell walls within eukaryotes. And the same thing with archaea. They also have different types of cell walls. And so it seems that you don't have like one dominating structure in terms of the virions that infect eukaryotes and, 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 and archaea, whereas with bacteria, they almost all of them look like these spaceships. And, and, and we think the reason for that is that this peptidoglycan cell wall is as widespread as it is within the bacteria. Okay. Um, you know, another one, when, when a virus enters a cell, bacteria, whatever it is, um, do you think it's capable of, of co-opting the cellular machinery to signal other cells, you know, using like extracellular vesicles or just some chemical sensing to say, uh, any other cells out there infected by viruses like me? 
And, yeah. and so in doing so, do a, like a quorum sensing or coordinate action? Yeah, that's the thing. I, I've heard about that. Actually, I heard him talk about that. There's this guy called Rotem Sorek, who's, an, he's, who's a researcher from Israel, and he discovered this new system. I don't even know. I don't remember right now what it's called, but it's really interesting. And so basically, bacteriophages can basically coordinate infections between each other. Because so if you have a, a bacteria, if you have a cell infected by a particular bacteriophage, it will create some kind of a signaling molecule, which will get exported outside of the cell. And, and that signaling molecule will be picked up by other cells, which are also infected by bacteriophages. And that way, the bacteriophages can coordinate infection in order to, you know, uh, uh, make the infection more efficient. Because you don't want to kill all the host cells at once. You actually want to phase it out because that's going to ensure the long-term survival of both the host and the bacteriophage. And so, and the, so that's actually a thing. And I don't remember what it's called, but it's really cool. You know, it's amazing that that can even happen. All right. So, uh, you know, last couple, um, what role, I mean, we've talked about this, but just directly answering this question, what, what role do you see that viruses play in evolution and adaptation of us, of yeah. other macroscopic species of, you know, that's, that's a, Really nice question. I, I like that question because I tend to believe, I mean, I work with viruses, right? And I'm seeing the ways that viruses influence their hosts in all kinds of strange ways. And sometimes there, there can be beneficial interactions. Other times there can be kind of like these interactions that are harmful to the host. And so uh, we've been focusing as human beings on the harmful effects of viruses for a long time now, especially with this COVID pandemic going on, you know, because that's a harmful virus. But you know, as I said in the beginning, we see these children, the data that I'm working with, we have children that are infected by hundreds and hundreds of viruses and they're not sick. And so, yeah, sure, you could say that most of those viruses infect the bacteria that live within the, the kids. So why would the kids become sick from those viruses? Because they infect, they're infecting the bacteria and they're not infecting the actual kids. But that's not all of them. I mean, I think around 10% of the viruses that we see in this data set are human viruses. They infect the actual kids themselves, right? And so... The kids are infected by, you know, maybe 10 or 20 different viruses, but they're not sick, right? And so we, and, and, and we've, this is, you know, we've seen this a lot of times also with HPV, for example, that causes cancer. This virus is causes cancer. It's a sexually transmitted virus. And most human beings that are sexually active are infected by, you know, several HPV infections. Some of these can cause cancer, whereas others they're just completely asymptomatic and you don't actually get sick from them, right? And so I think we've been focusing a lot on viruses that make us sick, but I think there's like a plethora of other viruses that don't make us sick at all. And so then the question becomes, could it be that those viruses were actually good for us and they are actually there to strengthen our immune systems and make us more resilient against the viruses that actually cause infections and can make us sick? You know, I think that's, that's a really big open question that needs to be answered. And we've seen it with bacteria. We've been af afraid of bacteria for a long time and we've been combating them with antibiotics and stuff. And now we're beginning to realize that most bacteria are actually good for us. And the more different bacteria you have in your body, the more better off you are, the more healthy you are actually. And I think it's just a matter of time before we get there in terms of viruses, we might actually begin to realize that most viruses are good for us. Okay. Yeah. Well, Shiraz, we're at the end of the time. Uh, is there anything, you know, for the last minute that you want to add that I haven't asked you that you, know, you just got to get out and tell me about? I think, I think maybe one thing I, that I would like to say is that, you know, the area of viromics is kind of new. 
And it's really taking speed right now. And the stuff that I'm doing with the kids is basically viromics. I mean, looking at all the viruses that are in the kids, right? And, you know, like metagenomics has been started, like, I don't know, that started like 15 years ago and has, it has completely revolutionized our, the way that we view bacteria, as I just said, you know, from being bad guys to good guys. And so viromics has just gotten started and maybe viromics will do the same thing for our view on viruses. And so this COVID basically pandemic, that's just... You know, that's just the, the, the odd guy out is kind of like a bad guy, but, you know, most viruses might not be. And so that's what I see coming, you know, maybe in the next couple of years that I hope that our view on viruses is going to change fundamentally. Uh, that's the last thing I wanted to ask you. Do you think most or all viruses are headed towards more of a commensal type of existence? Or do you think that some are just virulent killers and they stay that way forever? Or do you think they're all headed towards more of a mutualistic, uh, you know, existence with their hosts? Yeah, it's a good question. Just by looking at the numbers, you know, you know, I'm one of the few researchers that has the privilege to work with the viromics data because it's still a very new field. And just from the numbers that I'm looking, I can see it, right? I mean, that most viruses don't look like they make you sick, right? So most viruses might actually have a mutualistic role in their host and might maybe be symbionts of one sort or another, right? And so I think for a virus to pull off being harmful to its host, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's not easy because the host immune system is going to get after you, is going to try to kill you and stuff like that. So a virus needs to have, he needs to get loads and loads of things right in order to be harmful and still survive. And so I think most viruses just get around that by not being harmful at all. Okay. Well, very good. Shiraz, thanks for coming. Uh, you handled the questions well. I know they were, you know, I deliberately made them like, incredibly tough to see what great info comes out of them so (laughs) thanks for being here i appreciate it yeah thanks a lot for having me richard it's been a pleasure if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs if you like what you hear be sure to review and subscribe to the finding genius podcast on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and want to be smarter than everybody else become a premium member at findinggeniuspodcast.com this podcast is for information only no advice of any kind is being given any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility consult professionals when advice is needed